the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. The Financial Sector Conduct Authority recently released its regulatory actions report, and needless to say, part of it covers cryptos. Here's a quote from the report. One of the major issues with cryptocurrency from a regulatory perspective is the high volatility of the assets. The FSCA worries about the suitability of cryptos, particularly its volatility as an investment for large segments of the population. On the 19th of October last year, crypto assets were declared to be financial products under the FISA Act. That's the Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act. And so now crypto asset companies will have to get licensed as financial services providers by the end of this year. This seems to be an interim step as the report makes it clear that further regulation is likely once the Conduct of Financial Institutions Bill or COFI Bill is passed. It's also become clear that some players in the crypto industry are attempting to skirt the law. Imagine that, particularly when it comes to trading in crypto derivatives. Most of these involve a type of derivative known as contracts for difference, where you're not actually buying the underlying crypto, you're merely buying exposure to the price movement in the crypto. To help us understand this better, we're joined by Gerard van Dieventer, who's head of enforcement at the FSCA. Welcome, Gerard. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. Thank you very much, Gerard. It's a pleasure. I listened in on your presentation to the media. I must say, I was staggered by the sheer volume of investigations you undertake every year. Uh, nearly 440 new investigations opened and about 400 closed. That's all in one year. It's pretty impressive. Uh, I don't know how in-depth these investigations are, but uh, tell us a little bit about that. Have you got enough staff to, to do all of this work? Thank you, Kieran. Yeah, I, I can't. I, I certainly can't admit that I have enough staff because I always want to ask for more. No, I'm only joking. Let me just put that number in perspective for you. Not every investigation that we do, we do a full investigation. We certainly don't have enough staff for that. And um, I don't think we could ever employ enough staff for that. We will kill the industry with levies if we do that. So we have just under 40 staff to cover all investigations and enforcement. And that, of course, includes the market abuse issues, the insider trading and so forth. But our investigations really range from a quick desktop establish what the issue is, what's going on, make sure that we don't have to pass it on to another agency, or then uh, to come to a conclusion, warn the public and hand it over to the police, to full investigations that could run for years. And I think Steinhoff is a good example of that. But the trading was also quite a, quite a big investigation. So you have all those kinds of investigation that makes up that number. And part of that number also comes from enforcement actions that happens, of course, in the supervision area at the FSCA. Um, but at the end of the day, um, the truth of the matter is that it is impossible to investigate every complaint that comes across our desk. So we have a case selection policy and we look for cases where there is a bigger impact in the market or, or for clients or a high profile or a good reason to do a full investigation. And um, yes, my staff work extremely hard. They're very dedicated and uh, we tend to survive. All right. I mean, I know I, I correspond with you a fair bit because just, for example, in the last week, uh, MoneyWeb readers, they write to me, you know, have I heard of this or that group? I do my own little desktop investigation and it's quite 
easy actually to to see if this is a legit company or not. But I pass that on to you because sometimes that is you have to put out a public warning about these. But they're happening so fast. That's the thing that is amazing. Uh, is this a sign of the times that we're in? Yes, Kieran, I don't know if it's a case of it now becoming more well-known. I mean, um, the journalistic issue here, um, the role that the journalists play is very important. And they, even if we don't touch a case, guys like you bring these things out and the public actually have an opportunity to be warned. So maybe we just tell people more about it. But I think a lot of it is actually technology-enabled because scams have moved from bank accounts and from businesses that I could kick down a door and raid the place to cell phones, to WhatsApps. So I think it is enabled a bit. We've certainly moved to monitoring social media platforms, and that has been very interesting. Um, there you pick up the scams very quickly. And as you say, Kiran, there are these obvious red flags, the unrealistic ret- returns and the vagueness about what this product is about and so forth. So, yes, it is a sign of the times, but I think it's also just more well-known right now. Just on that point, I mean, you know, for people who don't really know how to spot a scam that quickly, and I'm sure you could do it, in, you know, in, in five seconds. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're offered a return which is fantastic and is way above what the market is currently giving, that should probably be your first red flag. But then you go to the website and you have a look and you see, okay, they, yeah. they talk about, about us. You know, do they disclose who the directors are? Uh, do they have a phone number and a physical address? If they don't, that, that's, uh, you know, you're looking at a virtual operation that could be run out of anywhere. Bad spelling on the website. And, uh, the, but the main thing is just, I guess, be careful of these unrealistic returns, right? Absolutely. That is, that is certainly the number one red flag is unrealistic returns. You know um, as well as I that if there was a way to make those returns, you're not going to tell anybody about it. You're going to keep it for yourself. Um, and it is simply not possible to have those returns. And often the claim would be it's based on crypto. And then you look at, uh, at, at the reaction in the market of crypto and that nowhere matches that. It's very easy to get those returns if you're running a Ponzi scheme, of course. Um, so that is certainly our red flag number one. But I, th- I must tell you the other big thing, Kieran, that your listeners can look out for is vagueness. As you mentioned, you're not sure who the directors are. And most importantly, you're not sure what the financial product is. They speak about investments, but they are never specific about what that investment is. And part of that reason is they want to stay away from our jurisdiction. So the moment they claim it is a specific financial product, we have jurisdiction, we can step up. So I think vagueness is is a massive indication of something being wrong. And my, my simple advice to people is that if you do not understand the product, please don't get into it because right. that is just madness. Right. Let's focus on cryptos for a second. Uh, going back to the report, the report does make it clear that you're concerned about ordinary public getting involved in cryptos, which is extremely volatile. You know, we've had, we saw Bitcoin dropping 70%, more than 70% last year. Then, of course, it's up again, you know, another 60% or so this year. What were the main issues that concerned you? I get the point that you've sort of accepted cryptos are here to stay. Uh, maybe at one point you, you weren't so sure whether this was you know, even something that you should countenance. But 
you've accepted it's here to stay, but what are your concerns about cryptos? Yeah, well, yes, you are right. We certainly have, as the FECA, accepted that it's here to stay, and we've also accepted that it's very important to supervise and regulate it because, as you mentioned, it is a very volatile product. And um, for a moment there, when FTX was not doing so well, I thought, well, maybe we're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out we were not. I think the big issue, as you said earlier, is, of course, volatility. And then if you take that volatility, it directly translates into a high-risk product. And a high-risk product will then immediately take us to our main concern, and that is suitability. That is such a big issue in our industry um, because even in the legitimate businesses, you have to keep an eye on suitability because suitability sometimes becomes a victim of higher commission. And that is so unfortunate. And I live with these experiences every day of retired persons who've put all their monies in there countless ones um my junior investigators when they join me i think that's that's the big issue when they start off is having to deal with that emotional turmoil but that suitability issue is actually made worse when you think about the derivatives so the underlying crypto is already volatile then you add the derivative aspect to it the the context for difference that you mentioned that just the mere fact that something is a derivative means it's a geared product and it's a high risk. So you've got a double high risk here. So the bottom line is very, very small part of our community should be thinking about crypto and crypto derivatives. And that message uh, doesn't always come across. So we're hoping, um, and my colleagues in licensing and supervision are busy creating a licensing framework for crypto and a regulatory framework for crypto. Um, And that will look a lot like the phase framework. So we certainly will be looking at conflict. We certainly will be looking at proper advice and suitability issues and those things. So I think that is the main concern. But there's another concern there, Kiran, that is also very important. And that's obviously something that we see all the time um, because of what we do, because of our mandate. And that's the fact that Platform trading and crypto trading and CFDs is an extremely popular place for scammers to hide because it's somewhere on the internet. You don't know where to find it. It can be based in some island jurisdiction that is not, let's just say, that serious about (laughs) regulation as we are. Um, And um, it really means that the scammers can pop up. They can convince people to put their money in there and they can disappear and the other problem is of course if a South African trades on a on a trading platform in crypto or anything else it means money leaves the country immediately makes it so much harder when it comes to recovery so uh, yes it is here to stay and there are responsible players in the market and that's great but people must please take into account they must always deal with regulated entities and even if they're dealing with regulated entities they must look out for signs of ill health um, in the office. Right. I want to come back to the to the brokers because that's an interesting business in itself. You know there was the case with JP Markets which the FSCA actually lost and you know a lot of brokers maybe saw there and you know an opportunity to or a gap in the market and we're seeing a lot of you know, foreign companies opening up in South Africa with no presence here. But I just want to carry on with, you mentioned Mirror Trading International, which of course was 
chain analysis said it was the biggest crypto scam in the world in 2020. Homegrown, uh, you know, I guess to our shame, I, I don't forget the exact way that you, you referred to it, but uh, it, it certainly was a shame on South Africa that it came out of here. Now, Johan Steinberg, who's the CEO of Mirror Trading International, he was arrested in December 2021, and as far as I know, he still sits in a jail in Brazil. Do you know anything more about that? That, that is correct. Yes, it was a massive investigation, and it was a tremendous learning curve. We also made use of external experts to assist us with that, crypto experts. That was really, really interesting. But you are right, he's still in South America. We are busy with active support for the prosecuting authorities, but as you know, that's completely out of our hands. But we do support them. We really want to see this case through. And we did speak to the prosecutor in the last 24 hours, and um, he did confirm that um, the extradition papers has been served. So that process is underway. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a good chance that he'll have to come back. He's a South African citizen. And uh, we assisted with that application with affidavits and so forth. But I also understand that um, the USA is interested in it. Yeah, the, the, so. the, Texan, <laughs> the Texans want to get their hand on it because yeah. a lot of the yeah. victims of Mirror Trading International were located in the U.S. That's so right. I think they are also trying to extradite him to the U.S., which is, you know, either way, it's, he's, he's not going to see much daylight for, for the next decade or so. I agree with you and with the greatest of respect. I think that is well deserved, but it's not unusual for countries to fight about a, an accused. So right, this is one right. of those cases. <laughs> and I, I mean, it would be interesting to know who would get preference there. Would it be the United States or South Africa? I have no idea how that part of international law works, but I think we'll have to be patient. We'll get our turn. Right. And of course, there's, uh, there's a lot of court cases been going on re regarding Mirror Trading International. Was that the biggest investigation that you have done to date, would you say? In terms of value, yes, most definitely. I don't think we've ever spoken about more than a billion in investigations. In terms of effort, something like Steinhoff was and is still a massive effort. And I think there's definitely be a few cases in our past that's, that's been bigger jobs. But most definitely in value, we've never seen anything like this. And was it complicated? It was not as complicated as you would imagine, Ken, because this was a very simple case of Mirror Trading International telling their clients that they're trading on a very specific platform, overseas platform, on their behalf. And our investigation actually landed us at that platform. So I can maybe mention that we are members of an international organization called IOSCO. All the regulators, most of the regulators belong to this um, organization and there are memoranda of understanding that we sign to assist each other with investigations. So we can actually reach across borders and do investigations. And we do a lot for other countries as well. My team is also responsible for that. So we did get that assistance and we actually get got full cooperation from the two or three platforms involved. So there were claims that all this training took place on two or three platforms. And we got full cooperation and the truth of the matter is it was relatively easy to establish that it's absolutely not true. There's no trading. There was a little bit of trading in his own name. And that was quite strange because our victims that we interviewed had statements, trading statements that they gave us. And it turned out that that statement was nothing more than the demo function 
on the platform trading where you can demo and test your skills and so forth. Mm. And they took that, downloaded that, um, doctored that a bit, and uh, the platform actually matched up the demo trading for us with a false statement. So at the end of the day... Well, I, I think the other point to mention... Uh, was that in the trading that they did do, they lost more than half of the money. Absolutely, they lost most of the money. The other claim under oath was that they've got this magic bot that's doing this trading and it's wonderfully successful and it was designed by a gentleman from Polokwane. We tracked down that gentleman eventually, it wasn't easy. Yes. And um, he made it very clear that no, that is not his bot. He did do a bit of work long time ago, but not recently. Yes. So. The fraud and the misrepresentations was not that difficult to shoot down. Yeah. Of course, if you're talking about tracking those crypto assets and finding them, etc., which was with our assistance, but mostly the job of the liquidators, that's a different story. That, that is complicated and that is a specialized area. But the actual core story here, Kiran, was quite simple. MTI was simply lying to their clients. There was no trading. And it was just a very interesting Ponzi scheme. Um, and it's interesting that when we came out with this and warned the public, there was quite a bit of pushback. Um, and it's the from the winners. From the winners. Yeah, there <laughs> were some much. winners in Mirror Trading International. <laughs> yeah. There were major uh, leaders and winners, and, mm. and there were a lot of pushback. And people were saying it is actually our fault that this is going down the tubes because we are making money here. Yeah. But that's how a Ponzi scheme works. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, again, the red flags written all over that. You know, Johann Steinberg. The they didn't even have a board of directors. They never submitted any financial statements. You know, and Correct. if you look at the volume of funds that were involved there, I, I think if you tally it all up, it depends at what price you're going to, you know, you, you value the Bitcoin, but it was more than 29 billion rand, yes. Uh, yes. I think. Yes, yes, yes. You cannot have an operation, a multi-billion rand operation with, with no financial statements, no board. <laughs> so you would know that we applied for search warrants and we very carefully issued them exactly at the same time in three different provinces. So we literally waited around the corner one morning with police escort and so forth, and we entered three premises, Polokwane, Durban, and, and Stellenbosch. And uh, we um, mirror-imaged the servers, the cell phones, the laptops, and all of that, and we got out again. But I can tell you now, if I had to give an impression of what we saw at these buildings, that was not a big organization doing business. <laughs> somebody's house and somebody's backyard and so forth, you know. Uh, certainly, certainly not an entity of that scale. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, so no, no, no. That was, there was a lot of red flags, but the public don't see red flags if they make money. And people very easily will say that's because of greed. But I'm afraid these days it's probably also because of desperation. Yeah, it does seem to be that way. And, and I'm sure, you know, you mentioned the heartbreaking stories, you know, people who've worked all their lives and they're probably in their retirement years now. And they think, you know, maybe I can spice up my revenue a little bit if I get involved in this investment. And of course, it, it just just this week, uh, somebody right now actually referred the email, I think, onto you where he was enticed into an investment scheme, which he tripped on on the Internet. And um, it started off with a small amount of money, $250, and very quickly, within a month, $54,000 had been paid over. Oh. 
his paper profits, which uh, you know are you know hundred and something thousand dollars, but he's got to pay a license fee. Of uh, originally they wanted ten percent, but they discounted it for five percent. That's very kind of them. <laughs> you, you can see, uh, the, the, you know, so whenever you got to get money to get your own money, pay money to get your own money back. That's right. That you're That's dealing right. with a scam, and and unfortunately, it's a lot of people who are in retirement and they are struggling, and they fall for this kind of thing. You you are you are so right, and I'm, I'm not a psychologist, and I shouldn't dabble in that area, but we see that often that people are quite prepared to pay more money to apparently get their previous money that they lost back. But I see a very interesting psychological thing there as well. If that retired person lost the family's money, he doesn't want to let go because this is his role is to keep the family financially safe. He really just doesn't want to let go of that. He will pay the extra and he will then eventually come to us and blame us and do everything else because he can't accept that this has happened. And that's very, very sad, actually. Right. Okay. So... Coming back to this regulation of the crypto sector, crypto asset service providers, CASPs, they call them. Uh, I guess your office is dealing with, and not necessarily your office, but the FSCA is dealing with a ton of paperwork. People are applying, right? So um, not yet. It's going to start in June. You probably know that it was declared a financial product, but then at the same time, we gave an exemption to uh, to the industry to get the house in order because there's a fair amount of prerequisites to get your license. There's the fit and proper issue. But apart from that, there's also the skills and qualifications and experience and working under supervision and so forth. So we've given the industry an exemption so that they can get their house in order. In the meantime, while that is happening, my colleagues in licensing and supervision are creating that regulatory framework and the licensing framework um, to make sure that we can handle um, what's coming. I, I believe my colleagues will be ready for it. So the work they're doing at the moment, for instance, would be engagement with the banks to talk about what they call on and off ramping of fiat and crypto, engagements with the asset managers to see whether they can come up with a structured format for exposure to crypto and of course, um, engagements with the, with the 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 exchanges that exist already. So it's quite a cooperative process, and um, I think what will come out at the other end will be the way we hope we can see this rolling out. And that is that people who are really interested in crypto will firstly understand what they get into, especially on the derivative side, and secondly, it will be as safe as possible with the necessary warnings about the high risk of it. Yeah, I don't think you're ever going to be able to cut out losses that people make from from this kind of thing. But I I think the the big thing is, and you're right, a lot of the scammers entered the crypto space because it was unregulated and they could hide there. Now you will be able to say, well, are you licensed? Do you have a financial services provider's license and can you show me? That is absolutely true. But there's a bit of a misunderstanding there in the industry. Um, Well, maybe only parts of the industry, to be fair. And that is that if you're talking derivative crypto, it has always been licensed. Yes. And you've always needed a license. But it's licensed under the Financial Markets Act, isn't it? It's licensed under FACE as a derivative. Uh-huh. So you, you need a license for that. Um, so I hope there's no, there won't be any confusion that now that there's an exemption, that those guys, the derivative guys, are also exempted. Of course, they're not. They need to be licensed. And some other banks are getting into it. 
Right. Do you think people understand sometimes when they when they they think they're buying crypto or they're trading in crypto, but they're actually trading in a derivative? Sometimes it's not that easy to know because if you go to these platforms, you know, you will see the uh, do, do you want to buy or sell Bitcoin? You don't know that that is a derivative. You're, all you're doing, you're not actually owning Bitcoin. You're, all you're doing is you're buying a contract which gives you the price movement in Bitcoin. Kieran, I can state without any fear of contradiction that the answer to that in most cases is no. And I say that based on the interviews we do with the witnesses and the victims. It is so difficult to actually get a proper interview or a proper statement out of some of our witnesses because the first thing we ask is what was explained to you and what do you understand you in, invested in and the horrific truth is in most instances people don't know forget about the distinction between derivative and actual crypto they're not even sure what it was they in, invested in um, but it's only the sophisticated guys that understand that this is a derivative with a gearing effect People really have no idea. They are very happy if somebody tells them this is an investment. And that is certainly not good enough in terms of disclosure. <laughs> right, right. Going back to the, the report that you just released, uh, some very interesting things there and some outrageous violations of the law. Copy trading is one of them. Um, now, copy trading is where you can mimic the trades of a so-called expert, right? So there's a guy there. He's supposed to be, you know, the, the, the bee's knees. He knows what he's doing when it comes to trading. So when he enters a trade, you know, he'll either send you an SMS or you can watch him live on screen doing this, and then you can follow his trades. Uh, and there is a case study in the report about a company called Pioneer FX, and that roped in about 2.8 million from 276 clients. It's astonishing how quickly these things came out. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so tell us a bit about that case and why copy trading. I, I never even thought of this as, as a form of investment, uh, unlicensed investment advice. Explain that. Absolutely. Yes, I, uh, nobody was aware of that. They were quietly doing their business on these trading platforms, of course, because the trading platforms actually has a special function that allow for that. So... There's a quite a range of models there. On the far end of this model, the one you've mentioned, and that is where somebody, the bee's knees, as you, as you called him, I like that. I think I'll call him that from now on. So the bee's knees um, uh, will be very impressed with his own decisions, and he will communicate that to other people, and they will then follow. Now, that's clearly financial advice. There can be no doubt about it. And it's a financial product, so I don't understand where, where there could have been confusion at all. But there's a complete range then of models. And on the other side of the scale, the truth of the matter is that these trading platform applications, it's, it's mostly MetaTrader 4 and MetaTrader 5, that's very popular. They actually have a function built in where business can open his account, and that's basically the master account, and then the copy accounts or the mirror accounts, um, if he puts in a transaction into his account, that will copy onto the other accounts. It will these those other accounts will execute the same transaction, uh, either in full or in a ratio. So there's no communication; it just happens automatically. And the copy traders pay a fee to business for this privilege to be copied uh, or to be able to to copy it. So in my view. That's very simply discretionary business. I mean, that means you're making decisions on behalf of other people. And that requires quite a serious phase license. That's, that's a discretionary investment license. 
um, that uh, you will find at the big asset managers in South Africa and overseas. So that's not an easy license to get, you know. We would like to see that you have the skills, the experience, and the qualifications to actually be able to make those decisions on behalf of other people. But let me tell you this. In the Pioneer FX case, to add injury to insult, how the system worked is that the master trader that enters the transaction into his account, that's not a real transaction. His transaction does not happen. It's only there as an instruction to the copy accounts. So he has zero exposure to the market, zero risk. He lets his copy traders take the risk for him. And, um, of course, in the, <laughs> in the Pioneer FX Moorcroft case, this gentleman traded those accounts dry until there was nothing left, all trading losses. And that is why we took quite a grim view of the case. He traded it down to zero. That 2.8 million just disappeared. He traded it down to zero, but no exposure for himself because of how the system works. Um, was he just bad, just a bad trader, or, <laughs> or was there something worse than that? No, no, I, I, I'm not qualified to say whether he was a bad <laughs> trader, but um, all I can say is that the trading decisions was obviously not great. Uh, fascinating. Okay, because a lot of these brokers are offering copy trading services. So now, have you alerted them that this is actually investment advice and you've got to be licensed to, to Absol- do this? Absolutely. Yeah. We've, after every case, we make a press release and we've, we have made a general press release as well. But of course, we're very thankful for opportunities like today to alert them some more to it. So <laughs> thank you. Um, okay, another case that was very interesting in the report, which has, of course, been quite well publicized, and that was the Viceroy Capital. Viceroy being a research organization based, I think, between the UK and Australia, but they've um, essentially in two cases involving South African companies, one with Steinhoff, where they were correct, where they they were issuing a short instruction basically on Steinhoff. The second one was with Capitec, and that's where you took issue. They, they issued a report called, I think it's uh, Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. That's correct, the Wolf Report. The, the Wolf Report. <laughs> But what happened there was they were saying that, you know, Capitec's financial statements were overstated. They were false. They were incorrect. And they basically issued an instruction to short the stock, but had given prior notice to a hedge fund to take a short position and that the advisor itself would earn a percentage on that. And, of course, they, they earned, I think the report says, the hedge fund earned about $82 million from shorting that stock. At that point, you, uh, you said, okay, that's, that's enough. And um, I guess the concern, and it would be a concern for people who you know involved in giving any kind of advice, you know, offering an opinion on a stock. Yes. Uh, when I read the, that, it's like, wow, you've you got to be pretty careful about what you're doing here, even as a journalist. Absolutely, because there are consequences, no doubt. So, so in this case, you're absolutely right. There's no doubt, um, and that's not even dispute, that, that, that what they said in their report was false. There's no doubt that they um, arranged for short positions beforehand, so the motive is quite clear. And that is a clear breach of our anti-market abuse provisions in the FMA, in the Financial Markets Act, and specifically the, the false reporting. And in this case, deliberate false reporting. And um, this is why we took issue with it. It was actually, the directors were UK and Australia, but the company is actually New York based. So we imposed a 50 million fine and we made it known. But unfortunately for us, on reconsideration to the Financial Services Tribunal, 
the judge said that you're overreaching. The judge said, look, this is a foreign corporate entity. It's a, it's a peregrinus, as they say in law, and you are not able to impose a penalty. So it's not that they haven't done anything wrong. It's just that the view is that we don't have that type of jurisdiction. So you can appreciate that in today's day with today's markets and with there being no more borders when it comes to financial services and investment and so forth, this cannot be accepted by us. We we need to look at that. Uh, so we're definitely taking the matter on appeal, and we'll see what happens. And that's in the high court? That will go to the high court, yes. So maybe the judge was correct, but um, we definitely we have to take it on appeal. I think it's the responsible thing to do. But we'll also look at our structure and so forth to see whether we can change something to make this better. We have this ability to do investigations cross-border, so it will be a waste if we can't do something about it. Yeah. There were other areas of violations that came up in the in the report, and um, you mentioned funeral parlors <laughs> that are doing a little side hustle selling insurance policies without the required license, and, and then you've got some FSPs, financial services providers, which you call runners. Basically, it looks like they're selling fictitious policies, or they're somehow disguising the, the, the business flow. Just talk about that quickly. Sure. So let me start with the runners. That is an unfortunate situation that we also came across. So this is basically where one of our financial services providers employ persons to actually drum up business. And then the idea is that you would bring that business to the FSP. And that FSP will then ensure that everything is done correctly in terms of codes of conduct and so forth. So one of the most important things is that the qualified FSP must sit with the client and advise him properly and there must be a record of advice, etc. So there's a whole framework of protection for the client. What happens here is that's way too much trouble. Uh, the runner gets it all together, fill in the forms and, and then it's submitted to, to the insurance company. And sometimes it goes so far that the runner submits it himself or herself under the broker code of the person he's working for. So that's obviously a big problem and it's unacceptable. So we keep a keen eye on that. There's a lot of that going around. It's not completely unacceptable to have a runner, but that runner should do no more than drum up a lead. And that would be the end of it. On the funeral parlor side, it's a bit more complicated. We are not talking about hardened criminals here um, that are breaching the law on a daily basis. We are talking about a system and a situation in South Africa that has worked not too badly over the years because it's community driven. So in a community, there will be a funeral parlor and that funeral parlor will attend to the needs of the community. The problem comes in that not everybody is in a position that when there's a death in the family to immediately pay for a funeral, which uh, surprisingly enough is quite an expensive business. So what they do is they collect a monthly amount and uh, that means that they have access to a funeral and, and everything that goes with it. But needless to say, that is exactly the definition of insurance business. So we've been trying very hard to convince these entities and the associations that what should happen in a case like that is that money, that premium, should go to an insurance company and there should be proper underwriting and there should be proper information, etc. So we're dealing with that. It's quite tough. There is a bit of resistance, 
But um, what we've done from my side is we've created a special unit to deal just with that. And we're not going in focusing just on hard enforcement. We're also focusing on opportunities to regularize. Because if we can bring these entities into the fold, then this could really work, actually. Final question, Gerard. Are you seeing a trend towards better compliance overall, or are things getting worse? My sense, reading the report, things are getting pretty bad. (laughs) Uh, And then, as part of that, what role is crypto playing in that? So, <laughs> so there's two aspects to that. There's the registered entities and there's the unregistered entities. So, of course, on the registered entities, you have, you have a failure now and then like NEFG and so forth. Um, but mostly, I think there's an effort to color in, in the lines and it is the minority of regulated entities that overstep and, and that causes harm. I think... In that instance, I certainly see an improvement in compliance. I see quite big compliance functions. We work with them often, my teams, and um, there's a lot of cooperation and there's a lot of hard work that goes into compliance. And the compliance is a kind of a fight between sales and the FECA because, you know, sales wants to do everything and compliance is saying you can't do that. So there's a lot of cooperation and I think there's a lot of goodwill and um, I don't think it's getting worse in that sense. Unregistered site, unregistered operators, um, that is certainly rife. And I think that is not a pretty picture. So I think it would be fair to say um, things are getting out of hand. But yeah, does crypto play a role in it? The one role, I'm not talking now about crypto as a product itself, the one unfortunate role that crypto plays in our lives and in the lives of the prosecutors and, and the hawks and so forth is of course that's where you your follow the money ends so i grew up in a forensic environment where you get the bank statements and you follow the money until you have explained where every cent went and then you've got a good case the moment that it's crypto it gets a little bit more complicated but i'm happy to say that's changing um, because the whole world has reacted to that and say we need to know we need to be able to follow crypto as well but uh, yes crypto I think crypto is just another sexy new product on the block. But what I see in the crypto scams is really nothing new. It's the same old tricks that they used before. Right. Nobody's reinvented the wheel when it comes to crypto, right? Not really, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gerard van Dievenser, we're going to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us on the Money Web Crypto Podcast. For listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.